Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Steve Blank who is a serial entrepreneur, a former Air Force officer, a founder of Hacking for Defense, a member of the Defense Business Board, and an adjunct professor at Stanford. Steve, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks for having me. Great. So I want to start off here with uh, Blank's rule, which states that in order to predict the future, you basically have to have one-third of you be crazy. And this is an incredibly important kind of concept in my mind. And it strikes me as related to Michael Pogliani, he was essentially, you know, a, a philosopher of science back in the 20th century, and he had this concept of tacit knowledge that real innovation and real progress require these anticipations about what's likely to be correct in the future, and it can't really be verified by third parties using explicit rules like math or known facts like natural laws. Now, of course, in the Department of Defense for a lot of acquisition programs, this is exactly what you need. You need these types of articulated information that can be consensually agreed upon by layers of bureaucracy and neutral experts. So craziness isn't really allowed in the defense acquisition programs, in my view. So can you just talk a little bit about Blank's rule and then how that manifests in commercial and government uh, activities? Sure. I mean, it, it was just an observation about the distinction of how startups work and how entrepreneurs think and and this overused word visionaries think versus uh, how people come to work daily to do their jobs. And, and what I found is that most people, whether they're in the commercial world or, or, um, or in the DOD, tend to be great at predicting the past. And while that's fine in a static environment, and, and when your competitors are also predicting the past, you know, no harm, no foul. But in fact, when you have people operating with different mindsets, you could rapidly fall behind. And I think, and I don't mean to diverge from your question, but that's obviously... What's happened in the last two decades in the DOD versus China and even Russia is while we were focused on making sure we got, um, you know, dealing with non-nation states, uh, right, thinking great power conflict is over because we won in the 20th century. We woke up to realize that not only uh, were our adversaries or new adversaries buying new systems, they basically obsoleted all our old ones. And yet uh, we haven't gotten that memo, you know, and, and it's not just an acquisition problem. It's an imagination problem. And, and it has all the other accoutrements of the problem of acquisition of, of a deep pockets democracy, lobbyists, you know, congressional interests, you know, jobs, et cetera. That really makes those transitions from battleships to aircraft carriers, you know, massively hard or from horses and horse blankets to tanks. And, uh, you know, people written about this uh, for the last, 50 years, and so I'm not the first to, to talk about it, But I and, and neither are you, but I think our, our voices need to get much louder because uh, um, our adversaries have figured this out uh, really well, and we still haven't gotten the memo. 
But what was your question? Sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, I think you're addressing the question, but I guess some of the question is that, you know, in the Department of Defense, in order to get an acquisition program approved, it basically has to go through layers and layers of bureaucracy, some of which are neutral experts, some of which are, you know, laymen on the, on the business side. And they all basically have to agree to this thing. And so it needs this articulated plan, a cost estimate. Where are you going to go over the next five, 10? What's your production plan before you even start you know, full scale development. So it's really like this yeah. big waterfall process where you're supposed to know exactly what the end state's going to be before you really start. And that seems to kind of go against Blank's rule and as well as Michael Pogliani and a lot of these other guys that are saying, hey, you kind of have to, you know, have some imagination. There's, I want to just read a quick quote here from, from Pogliani. He says, looking forward before the event, the act of discovery appears personal and indeterminate. It starts with a solitary intimations of a problem and bits of pieces here and there, which seem to offer clues of something hidden. They seem like fragments of a yet unknown coherent whole. But we can't really start a, a program unless we think that we know exactly what that coherent whole is. So I, I'd summarize what you said in a different way. You know, most vision, most people who think they're visionaries are actually hallucinating. Yeah. <laughs> but there are a few who actually do see the future. And, and the problem is, is that finding that signal and noise really unnerves people whose jobs it is to, in, in fact, simply fund an, a better version of the current thing. And so in, in business, we, you know, about 30 years ago, McKinsey came up with a model that helps companies think about um, how to how to think about this called the three horizons of innovation. And, and it's a it's a kind of a good shorthand that says, look. Every good organization needs to incrementally add features or, or additional things to their current product or think of this as their current weapon system, bigger, whatever, even. And that's called the Horizon One Innovation. And, of course, everybody should be doing that. Um, and that's classic requirements and acquisition is translated into DOD. Um, and, but then there's, you know, uh, like Horizon Two, which says, let's take an existing system and maybe repurpose it. Uh, like putting um, new missiles, existing missiles on new on, on Navy ships. Uh, what are we doing? Putting harpoons or their equivalents now on, on ships for longer reach and whatever. The missiles exist. We're just kind of repurposing them, et cetera. And it's a new program. It's tr truly kind of innovative in, in how it's used, but didn't require a huge insight. It required someone to say, let's take this and put it over here to solve a new problem. And by the way, traditional requirements and acquisition can do our traditional okay job, if you think <laughs> it's okay. But the ones that really screw us up are the ones in the commercial world we call disruptive innovations. Disruptive innovations, there is no five-year plan. And this is back to the quotes you made, is that you have to imagine what the future is. And for the DOD, the problem is, one is we, we tend to think that those are all technology-driven. Gee, let's spend several billion dollars building shiny object X or Y. And sometimes they are. And I'll give you some great examples of where we need to meet to. But, but the real trap is thinking they're only technology driven. You know, the biggest disruptions that's happened to the DOD in the last 75 years, probably since Pearl Harbor, were the islands in the South China Sea. What kind of technology did that require? That was a huge disruptive idea. And I hope there's some 30 foot statue of some Chinese colonel somewhere who said, well, sir, we need bases in the middle of the ocean. And before they shot him, he said, no, 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 we own the biggest dredging ships in the world. Why don't we just dump sand on these reefs? And all of a sudden, they basically negated 75 years of our ability to project power 
in the Western Pacific, along with the F-21s and everything else. And they've made a Navy's life incredibly hard. And, and so disruption could also, but my point is disruption is not only tech. Um, it, it's also sometimes just innovative thinking in a way that just is non-consensual, non-traditional. But specifically for acquisitions of systems, it's pretty clear that we've invested for the last, you know, since, since and during the Cold War in survivable systems where it's pretty clear we need, whether it's Navy or Air Force or anything else, to go to attributable assets. You know, we invested in the large and best in breed platforms. Well, it's pretty clear that those are, you know, have little targets or big targets painted on them. We now need distributed assets. And a great example is, you know, we have Battlestar Galacticas up in space, one could imagine, we talk about. But SpaceX is about to launch 44,000 you know, satellites for in Starlink as a communication network. Imagine that kind of targeting problem for our adversaries versus four. Right. Four versus 44,000. But that's not where we're going, or at least publicly. We were proud that we built best-in-class features. Our, you know, things have the best resolution or the best whatever. But in fact, if you decide that distributed assets are the way to go, then you start thinking about aggregation of mass good enough features. Well, that also changes the game about the entry of adversaries. They don't have to be as good as ours, but they could have a thousand times more. And that's not just some hyperbole. We're used to features being fixed and updates to systems taking months or years, if ever, and a new contract and whatever. I have to tell you, in the startup world, I mean, people are aghast. We update our systems in hours or days continually, and no features are fixed. And if you don't believe that could be do, uh, done with complex systems, Teslas are updated. That is, your car is updated literally within every couple of weeks for the last eight years I've owned a Tesla. You know, we, we built Stealth, which was great when you had one or, or few platforms. But, you know, I think people are going to realize when you're when you're spending billions for a single platform, you might want to decide that perhaps a mass swarm of things that are observable rather than a single thing that's unobservable. I could go on and on, but my point is it's not just, you know, shiny object tech. It's that the whole kind of class of systems we need to build are radically different than the things we built in the 20th century. And more importantly, and this is for me the big one, it's just not an acquisition problem. These new systems will create a whole new set of operational concepts. We won't use robotics on the battlefield the same way we were using men and people. We won't use drone swarms exactly like we were using aircraft. Yes, we'll have, you know, unmanned wingmen. Thank you for being innovative. But that's not how future air battles are going to be fought. They're going to be fought by machines for dominance of airspace. Um, you know, and, and what that means is, you know, the existing primes, and this goes back to acquisition, who essentially, and, and again, I don't mean this as a pejorative, but as a way to think about it, the old primes were essentially sheet metal vendors who had to figure out software. And we're seeing some of the problems of that when that's not built into your DNA. I think we're going to see new primes that actually were built as software companies that learn how to bend sheet metal. And if I had a bet on what the future is, it's not going to be the sheet metal vendors. And, and, and again, I don't mean that as a pejorative and they have a long history, but it's like discussing the long and valued history of the cavalry. Great, whatever, guys, but that's not where this is going to be in 20 years. And if we think it is, we're going to be pretty outmatched. And, you know, this waterfall engineering versus agile, I think uh, we hear this all the time. And it's just, again, to people in the commercial world, no one builds fixed 
features specced up front, not understanding that, you know, the problem's going to change. You truly don't understand the requirements until you get out of the building. You need to build products iteratively and interactively. You know, something as simple as like, gee, what do you mean we didn't build minimum viable products of those elevators on, the, on a Ford class carrier or, or tried some of these things out? Oh, it was too expensive. Well, you know, I think we see the, the even on things we should have known better on. And what that means is today, for example, in, in headquarters staff, innovation is, you know, kind of like some disconnected activity or, gee, you know, we'll worry about that later or, gee, my requirements, people got it. Worse, in fact, in, in particularly our adversaries, continuous innovation is integral to the mission at headquarters level. And more importantly, civilian military fusion is like what they do. And, and equally interesting for acquisition, and I see this, the Air Force being the classic example, you know, we love to buy things and operate them in the military. And the consequences, for example, we love to buy rockets. You know, okay, let's buy a rocket, but now we're going to launch it. Well, that means that the contractor has to design things for, with a tech manual for operators with a certain grade and experience level, et cetera. But the model really is going to go to, for a good number of our systems, we ought to buy outcomes, not things. And what I mean by that is, you know, why are we not just contracting for, I need this much bandwidth and I need this much, you know, payload into space. And I mean, well, because real men love, you know, to own rockets or real men love to own satellites or real men, I could go on and on. Some things obviously can't be acquired like that, but there are a lot of things that now we could be thinking about services. And even as DOD internal services, let alone uh, commercial services. So sorry, I've been babbling way past <laughs> what you asked. No, that was great that you touched on just an incredible number of things that I actually wanted to get to. Actually, I heard recently that the Army was uh, talking to SpaceX about contracting for Starlink. And even they were saying something about Starship. It wasn't clear what <laughs> what they wanted out of Starship. Right. But yeah, I, I think there's, there, you know, there's a lot of interesting things there. You know, when we think about the cavalry, you brought up the cavalry. Back after World War One. they were actually, they did a big study on that. And they said, okay, what's the cavalry, you know, going to do in this age of tank warfare? And the study came back and said, Horses make people smarter on the battlefield. We'll just drive them up to the battlefield and then we'll do the exact same thing that we used to do. <laughs> it's just like, so I think a lot of what you're talking about kind of gets around ambidexterity. So that's, yep. can you just describe, you know, what is ambidexterity and like how, how do large organizations need that in order to do things across the three horizons that you were talking about? Yeah, so ambidexterity, for uh, those of your listeners is not familiar with it because it's a, like a weird word to use in an organization, essentially means your ability to chew gum and walk at the same time. <laughs> and by that, I mean, look, you have your current mission. And, you know, in a commercial company, you have your current customers and products and services. In, in the DOD, think of it as your current mission. And you want to focus your energy and your requirements and new acquisitions on current mission. And as I said earlier, if the world is static, that's fine. You know, and, and in fact, if your adversary is moving at the same pace with the same tech as you are, well, great. You could kind of keep up and you guys will leapfrog each other year to year, but it'll be kind of, that's fine. But that's not how the world is today. The world is uncertain and people are, and more importantly, technology is being driven, not just by DOD labs, but a good chunk of it, everything, but maybe hypersonics. That's about it. Maybe, maybe some advanced quantum stuff are not just DOD tech. 
they're commercial tech being driven by much more money than the DOD has in their budgets. So now all of a sudden, innovation is occurring at a rate that's different than what mission requirements are for current systems. So how do you separate out those separate lanes? Amy Dexterous says, look, I need to obviously support my current mission, but I need to be thinking about, this is, goes back to the crazy things you know, right, that might occur in the future. How will we build swarms of systems, not just swarm drones that look like, you know, existing concepts for what we're doing today? Or how do we not have, oh, it's an optionally manned bomber? Oh, what a surprise. You know, why don't we think about what the concept is about securing airspace or delivering payload on target or delivering payloads in space or not just the issue is payloads in space, but the issue is survivable communications and intelligence and other things we do up there. Those are different outcomes. And to, to do that, and here's the big idea, you need different people. Most people, and I'll, this is my experience of 40 years of doing this, most people in large organizations want to come to work, do a job that's prescribed by a job description, get promoted, and, you know, like, and then go home and hug their kids and wives and really have a good time. But there's a few people, just a few, not better, you know, not smarter always, but very different. And, and these people hear things that other people don't. They definitely see things that other people don't. And they think differently. And in most organizations, they're called the Mavericks or, you know, the Innovators Alliance and whatever. And they're beaten to the ground because there isn't a organizational structure that embraces the ability to do execution and innovation in parallel. And, and at what's worse is in the last five years, Good parts of the DOD have adopted a good chunk of what startups do, my lean startup methodology. And, if, you know, there's an explosion of incubators and accelerators across the DOD. And, and I think that's wonderful in shaping culture. But actually, it's created innovation theater. And innovation theater is, hey, look, you know, we point to the general and the general could point to the civilians. We have one of these, too. It looks like just like large company X. And then you go, uh, sir, uh, how many programs of record have come out of this thing? Oh, let me show you our coffee cups and posters and lanterns. <laughs> and you go, no, no, no. You know, how many billion dollar acquisition programs have come out of all these things? And the answer is there's probably, you know, probably one acquisition program, you know, of a billion dollars exceeds anything that's been funded outside of these accelerators. And so it's not that we should stop doing them is that we really don't have what uh, I and Pete Newell call a innovation doctrine. We really don't understand uh, how to connect all these, what, what I'll call point activities, into a transition program of how do we use innovation and disruption to create a whole new series of both weapon systems and more importantly, operational concepts that not only in some cases catches up to our adversaries, but actually get us ahead. You know, I think as a civilian now looking at it from the outside, I think the biggest disservice the DOD does to itself today is describing China as a near peer adversary. I'm not sure that's true in the Western Pacific. You know, I'm, you know, I've I've seen enough to convince me that there might be a lot of stuff going to the bottom of the ocean. And though hopefully we'll never figure out that's not a near peer description. And so we ought to be, and, and obviously there are, there are things we can't talk about that we're doing, but I don't think Congress understands this. I, I don't think the message has been delivered to the primes. And there's just some real, I mean, if you look at 
the total number of, of dollars the prime spend or, or get every year from the DOD, I don't know, what is it, the top 10? You're the expert. Is it like a quarter trillion dollars or something? Or And then you say, well, how much are they spending on acquiring startups? And, you know, my mother acquires more startups than they do. You know, what's Lockheed's uh, venture capital uh, budget? $40 million. And, and you go, that's their pencil budget. No, no, that's their VC budget. That would be like a... In, in Silicon Valley, that wouldn't even make the list to have get online for lunch somewhere. And so there is no incentive from the DOD to the primes that said, hey, you know, I'll tell you what, everything you acquire that ends up in a weapon system from a startup will pay you 2x or everything innovative that you buy and deploy. And whatever. that is, there isn't an end to end uh, innovation process that has incentives. And, and I don't believe in sticks. I believe in lots of carrots to motivate our existing primes to kind of like welcome to the 21st century and more importantly to motivate the new set of primes that have stood up the palantirs and the andrews and and the spacex's you know spacex's fight with um, and palantirs fight with the dod should be illustrative about like you know all those horse blanket and and horseshoe generals who who fought them if it were me i would be taking away their retirement pay it's like, excuse me, but you did a better job that China could have done in, in like delaying our ability to, to respond. Sorry for the soliloquy. No, that's great. You know, with this transition problem in the innovation theater that you're talking about, you know, a lot of it for me it kind of gets back to, you know, how do you actually transition that program? And it seems like, well, we want to adopt what you're saying in lean methodology, but then every like statutory or policy type thing that we have in apartment defense is waterfall. So the Air Force, the Platform One, which is their software factory, um, they have a motto that says waterfall, only you can prevent. But, you know, we've been doing this for many years, you know, for decades, we've been talking about incremental or evolutionary or iterative methods. And they just seem to be stuck in this, you know, waterfall process where it takes, you know, one of the big parts is you have a multi-year budget process. In order to get funding, it takes me multiple years to even line up that funding and then transition it, assuming I can get everybody on board. So can you just talk a little bit about Agile Fall? What is Agile Fall? And, you know, why do large enterprises like the Department of Defense get stuck in this? Yeah, you know, it's probably just worth, if, if you don't mind, going back and actually explaining for the two listeners who don't know the difference between Waterfall and Agile. And uh, you know, I grew up in the 20th century where waterfall was the methodology of how we built things. Waterfall is just a, a, a shorthand for a description of how you build products and services in, in, in the old days and the old or in some parts of the DOD still today. And it basically said, look, why don't we specify every possible requirement for this new thing we want? Right. We'll write it down it's a, and it'll turn into a long feature list and we'll get it approved and whatever. And then we'll acquire it. And by the way, we'll set dates and times and, you know, for delivery. And we're going to have that entire feature list and we're going to send it out to a contractor. And they're not allowed to make changes because they just signed up to that feature list. And so what they do. So you start with a set of requirements, you go to a feature list and then you basically lock your engineers into a room and like they start developing either hardware or software. And you might have milestones for demos and whatever or, or proof of principles or whatever it is. And then the product or services comes out the other end. And typically, at least in, when I was building companies, years. And then you discover, oh, I really didn't understand those customer needs because there was no requirement to actually talk to them. And or often 
oh yeah, those kind of were the needs three years ago, but like the world has kind of changed. And if you would have asked, we would have told you, you know, 18 months ago, those weren't needed or technology has moved on. And the thing you built as a fixed system is unupgradable unless you, uh, unless we give you another hundred million dollar contract to add three features. And that's the world of waterfall. Now, if you kind of deconstruct it, it says really on day one that you have to be able to predict the future. It's a big idea. Not only do you have to be able to predict the future when you write those requirements, you have to assume that you as the requirements writer sitting in your dark office deep somewhere in a big building with no windows, or maybe you have a window, are able to kind of uh, understand every possible customer need because you're the smartest person in the world. But in fact, we know that's not true. There's no way you could be smarter than the collective intelligence of potential customers. But Waterfall doesn't allow us to, to kind of take that into an account. Lean, in contrast, is a very different model. It says, look, instead of us trying to be the smartest people in the world trying to predict the future, why don't we just assume we can't predict the future? And why don't we assume that if we're going to try to build something and deliver it all en masse three years or 10 years later, that perhaps we ought to have some serious intermediate steps, not tests, but intermediate steps where we could test our assumptions. Because if you really think about it, all we have is a series of untested hypotheses on day one. Now, if we're buying the next rifle, those assumptions probably are understood. But if we're doing something big and complex that's new, we might want to think about how do we build a, a process that's agile, that allows us to build things incrementally and iteratively? And at every step, testing our assumptions, whether it's does this work or does it fit or is it still needed or are these features in the right order with the users and customers and warfighters and everybody a piece at a time. And that's called agile. And there's, there's known ways now to do this for hardware, software, complex systems, et cetera, that basically reduces the amount of money and time spent to get the product as delivered correct, right? And, and, and again, the biggest examples, and they're so beaten up, I'm, I'm sorry to pick on them, but you know, the Ford class carriers and the F-35s, right? I mean, you would think that those requirements and acquisition programs were run by the Chinese because I think they had, nothing could have set our country back so much about spending time, money, and resources. Eventually, of course, they're going to be great systems. But if we actually were building things with a different methodology about figuring out which pieces of the, these things had the higher risk and iteratively testing, and, and even for the most complex systems, we could have done this. And again, the bigger assumptions are, or is this the right system to, that solves a problem that's still going to be current when we eventually deliver it? Now, I, un I understand, much like in large companies, there are external forces that have nothing to do with waterfall versus agile and how we deliver. So, for example, if you do waterfall and you're a prime contractor, you want to make sure you have fixed requirements and fixed systems because every new, every new change is a new major contract. Um, being able to, you know, upgrade a, a system with a touch of a button like your Tesla can or some other systems we build or Amazon can or Google can, you know, is an anathema to a prime whose business model is predicated on low cost bidding for the initial system and then make the money on the upgrades. Right. That business model doesn't allow you to kind of build agile and upgradable systems because you'll go out, you'll go broke or more importantly, you'll lose the deal. 
you know, the other part is that like um, every prime and at least the large ones take the top 10 have jobs in the right congressional districts that, you know, make sure that these um, systems take years and decades. No one is interested in something that you could build in months and then you have to recompete and maybe lose those jobs in that district. And so therefore we have large lobbying dollars. In fact, the lobbying dollars for, you know, a, a prime exceeds, you know, what it costs a startup to build a, you know, a, a new company. Did I answer your question? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You would think that, and this was Oliver Williamson, he kind of said this, you know, if you actually chunk those down into smaller efforts, and we saw with SpaceX, NASA actually, in the early years, they had a other transaction, they had payable milestones. So there was like these, you know, incremental steps where they would actually get funding for, for different accomplishments that were outcomes based, right? So I guess you would think that there would be sales stabilization, actually, if you had smaller, more frequent contracts rather than these big one-time take-all. And then, you know, once that thing ramps down, you have to have a follow-on or you just get rid of this entire production facility. So why, why, is, why is modular contracting or smaller contracts more iter- iteratively done aligned with an agile me- methodology? You know, why do, why do we not do that? Why are we stuck with this kind of waterfall overall process in the funding mechanism and the requirements mechanism and the contract mechanism? Why do we have agile fall? Well, you know, if, if you think about it, um, let's go all the way up to the top. I mean, the benign view is the DOD itself internally has done a bad job educating itself and its requirements writers and its acquisition. I mean, Defense Acquisition University is slowly getting it. But if you want to start in, in a place that might be useful, I, I think from top to bottom, you know, people now need to understand you know, the nature of agile and lean. And, 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 you know, I still talk to numbers of staff people when you use the word lean, they think you're talking about headcount. Seriously. It's like, oh, yes, we, we're reducing the number of billets. <laughs> you know? uh, no, that's not what we mean. So what is an internal language and education problem uh, inside of requirements and acquisition inside the DOD and then to senior staff inside the DOD about what's possible? It's a big idea. I don't think we've done a good job educating ourselves about the possible. And and the possible is not, here's the religion. The possible is, here's the outcome of the religion. Here's what it will let us do to keep pace with our adversaries who have already adopted this. This is a big idea. The second part is to, and, and you've lived this, is to educate the congressional staffs first the staffs, about the benefits and the outcomes and the whatever, and the impact on the safety and security of the country. And then finally, educate the congressmen themselves who have different issues about, and, and you, obviously the deal need, needs to deal with the political realities of, I mean, it's like, you know, when Kennedy says, you know, uh, uh, about the famous Rice speech, he also started out about why does Rice play Texas? Well, you know, the same thing is, why do we have an SLS, right? There's no rational reason to have the space launch system other than that there's a senator who controls the budget and that there's no, you know, um, you know, the the NASA Buck Rogers quote, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. I mean, no SLS, no NASA. So, you know, DOD obviously understands the politics of that. But I think everybody ought, ought to understand that 
we could be developing systems faster, cheaper, better, more timely, more needed, more agile, being able to get this ambidextrous path going with a different mindset, different methodology. Um, but we've done a bad job. And I think um, your uh, blog and others clearly are the beginnings of a set of people who get it. I also think it's a generation gap. I think, um, you know, enlisted men and, and officers coming in today, you know, most of them have, you know, used GitHub and the Stack Exchange and whatever. And go run that test on 06s and above versus 03s and below or E3s and below for those who kind of, you know, work in, in those areas. I mean, I, I truly think it's what you grew up being used to. I just hope it's not too late that as those as those officers and, and uh, enlisted grow in ranks, that it's not too late for us to kind of catch up to uh, uh, both Russia and China who, and even, you know, regional threats like, you know, the other two out of the, the two plus three who have figured out um, how to use this stuff. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. I want to kind of go back to what you're talking a little bit about earlier on in terms of customer interaction and just like we have this big waterfall process and then we don't talk to the customer. And so you've given several examples just in the commercial world where startups try to build these products and then ship it. And then they just find out later, uh, oh, the customers aren't behaving as expected. Right. right. And this is kind of the opposite of what John Kenneth Galbraith used to think, you know, back in, in the 1950s and 60s. He thought that firms could just, you know, ram these products down the throats of consumers using advertising or otherwise. But it seems like Galbraith's model is actually kind of appropriate for the Department of Defense because users don't really seem to have this choice. Right. They don't have their own acquisition money. Their inputs way at the front. And then a new generation of users is kind of getting the product that comes out of that system later. So most of the people, you know, in leadership positions today, they seem to get what you're saying, right? They, when they talk on their webinars or whatever, they're using the language you're using. And you've been involved in this to a lot, much greater degree than a lot of people. So can you just talk about, you know, have you seen the users getting more involved in the process in a more iterative fashion? Or, you know, is that changing things in the Department of Defense? How do you see that actually playing out? Or is it just, you know, this is a lot of more innovation theater and we're not actually getting the users involved that much? Well, you know, I think if you look at the head of acquisition of uh, the Air Force, the Roper and, and Jetty from, you know, we used to run the Rapid Equipping Force and Army and, and, and some of the other servants and look at the Marine Corps' new operational concepts and what they're asking for. I think we're starting to see that change, uh, uh, but you know, there's all these moving parts to kind of, you know, turn that super tiger in this case, turn that battleship, you know, and a good part of it, you kind of uh, articulated earlier is we're kind of restricted by what laws and acquisition processes are embedded in, in those regulations, starting with title 10 and moving down. And so it's not just what do we wish. I mean, SOCOM was already doing this a couple of years ago, right? And they were kind of now AFWorks and others. But but I think the test for me will, and I'll go back to what I said earlier, is that a lot of great, you know, talk, but until some of those become programs of records that are measured in billions and, and the folks who, you know, are still buying things because they like to play with them rather than buying services and outcomes, I think until that mindset becomes dominant, this is still going to be a, a long struggle. And I do believe that the folks who get it could do a much better job in education 
It's when people stop talking about lean as to like, for example, as I said, it's not a headcount problem. It's a way to work. Does that answer your question? That is, I, I'm hopeful. I just think it's been a series of unorganized efforts from, if not the, and I won't say from the bottom up, I think in for decades, there've always been heroic innovation activities at the bottom. The good news is there's now some heroic innovation activities occurring on the top but they're not connected together in an integrated way to say this is the new model of how the DOD works. And here are the laws we're changing. Here's how we're revamping the entire, you know, Eisenhower curriculum and supply chain and procurement and how we're revamping the uh, acquisition university from top to bottom, not just adding another thing about agile. Here are the laws and, and things that need to be changed. My favorite one is, oh my God, you know, if security is like, uh, again, and I, I think I love our security folks both because of what they're trying to do, but how they do it, it just seems to be, uh, again, sometimes so counterproductive to get low side to high side stuff in from where the innovations are happening in the commercial world. It's, you know, we've run off some of the best companies and, and people who want to help. I don't know if you ever can imagine that there's a great cartoon of a castle under siege in the Middle Ages. And uh, there's a king looking over the battlements and he's surrounded by all these enemy troops. And there's someone knocking on the on the back door and you could see it's a salesman and he's carrying a machine gun. And the king goes <laughs> to his courtier, you know, tell the salesman to go away. Can't can't you see him fighting a war? And, and of course, the you know, if he would have let the guy in, it would have helped. I encounter that all the time when uh, on the security side, when commercial companies try to you know figure out how to knock on the doors of 20th century security models. So when we talk about acquisition, we also have to talk about, you know, how do we bridge this partnership gap with the commercial world? For me, that's truly a major failing so far of the DOD. I mean, we talk about OTAs and we talk about mid-tier procurement and, and I think Ellen Ward has done a good job in trying to change that model. But again, I, 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 to, to be honest, from where I sit, it's still pasting solutions on an existing system rather than going, no, 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 <laughs> guys, we're now buying, we're, we're buying outcomes. So why don't we start with that kind of system? Or no, you know, most of our stuff ought to be commercial. This is what Perry did back in the 80s, you know, and, and you know, there ought to be a version of the Last Supper again that, you know, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with when Bill Perry told the DOD primes that there's look around the table, half are you going to be gone and you ought to figure out which half yourselves before we do it. I think the same conversation needs to be had with the sheet metal vendors that says, guys, you're, you know, your hardware guys trying to play software. No, you guys need to be software companies who make hardware. Why don't you figure out who you're acquiring and who you're partnering with or else you're not getting any more contracts? Boy, that would be a really interesting conversation. And yeah, they'll all go to their lobbyists and go to Congress and whatever. So you've got to play that out as a chess game. But I think that's what's necessary for us to be able to compete. You know, the best book that, um, and, and I'm, I don't mean to pitch this, but it was a great um, read, was called Kill Chain by McCain's uh, staffer, who's now at Andrew. I, I thought it was a great summation of the problems the country faces. And the real eye-opener for me was the observation that we might not win the next war. And the next war might actually involve attacks on the U.S. homeland. It might not be physical troops, but, you know, cyber and other things. I mean, things that are unthinkable for most Americans. Losing a war? We don't lose wars. 
we sometimes bail out on our adversaries, on our allies, but we don't lose them. You know, this might be the first time when we have to deal with that. And I don't think the American public and certainly Congress has not gotten their heads around what's it going to take to win the next wars. Yeah, I mean, I definitely hear you on that. The the future wars are being fought in today's you know, program offices, right? Like the developments that are happening now are going to be affecting those. And and that's why I think there's a lot of urgency as to, you know, what we're doing today in acquisition and in the technology side of getting these programs out. And I completely agree that it seems like we have this huge edifice and then we're just tacking on little agile, you know, leaflets on, on top of that. And one example is, for example, the agile earned value management guide, which is the current instantiation of PERT, but that's just like, it seems like an oxymoron, right? Where it's like, you, I want you to do an agile waterfall process. What does that mean? <laughs> with, with an emphasis on the second syllable, right? It's not <laughs> Right. And I think that's what's stopping some of these. You know, I also agree that I'm with uh, Andreessen on this idea that, you know, software is eating the world. And the corollary is that software firms are actually going to be better at doing hardware than hardware firms are going to be able to pick up software. But when you have to do these earned value management things and get into a program of record, which is still defined in kind of a waterfall way, it's, it's almost like boxing those guys out. And I think that we almost need to reimagine. It's not just, can we transition more things into a program of record? We have to reimagine what that program of record is. And I think Roper was trying to do that with advanced battle management system which is the new kind of command and control system for the Air Force. And he got a lot of pushback from the General Accountability Office on that. And you said something interesting that you said, well, government's not really like, it's just not, government's not a large startup. It's not like that. There's lots of reasons for it. But some people are calling ABMS and maybe some of these other programs like Kessel Run, they're calling them something like a startup within government. So how do you see this? Can and should government carve out these small organizations with a startup mentality? Or are there just too many contradictions in the incentives and the way it works for that to, to actually happen? So I'll give you a business school answer, which is yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to both. And, and so what I think, uh, you know, the advanced management system is and Kessel Run and FWorks or whatever and all the incubators and experiments, I think what they're doing right now is education. I think they're educating leadership and Congress and, and what we'll almost call the old guard. I mean, think of them as the battleship, you know, admirals, that, that there's a different way of doing things. But what, what this lacks is it doesn't fit into an integrated innovation doctrine that all services, DOD, acquisition, Congress have bought into of here's the way we're going to be doing business. And, and what that means is we're going to spend if we're not careful, the next five or 10 years having these piecemeal battles without having an integrated view of where we want to get, how do we get to it, et cetera. And we're going to be arguing about specific systems rather than reforming a, an entire acquisition system, an entire requirements writing system, an, requirements, an entire program, how we deal with programs of record. We need a, a meta view here. And this is why I keep going back to an innovation doctrine that like everybody kind of agrees on, or at least I don't care if you agree on it, let's just have one. And I think, okay, it's now because we don't have one and we haven't had visionary leadership that kind of, that is, I think we, let me just go back. I think what Mattis did with the national defense strategy to wake up the entire country to say, look guys, it's two plus three. 
you know, we spent the last uh, 20 years fighting, you know, non-nation states. They're still one of the three, but we really ought to wake up. We need a document like that, so broad reaching, but with a, with a detailed annex of what we want to do for acquisition and weapon systems and concepts. And I think we're missing that equivalent. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, when I look back on like the 1950s and before, you know, it seemed like defense technology and weapon systems were just more agile and innovative in those years, World War II, 1950s. And then in the 60s and maybe 70s, you know, Pierre Thiel kind of marks 1970 as kind of like this breaking point where, you know, a lot, not just defense, but like a lot of, a lot of sectors in, in the economy kind of became less innovative especially on the hardware side. Do you think that's true? Are there lessons from the 50s and, and World War II eras that we should be looking at to model this? Or should we just completely reimagine it and say, you know, that was that worked then, we're, we're now in a new paradigm. Like, what what's that for now? Like, how do you see that? You know, unless you're a, a historian of uh, innovation, you kind of forget that in World War II, we invented civ- uh, civilian military fusion. Um, there was something called the OSRD, or OSRD that basically drafted professors uh, but kept them out of uniform and gave them military weapon systems problems and allowed them to staff the weapons labs inside of universities. It's how we did radar and MIT, electronic warfare at, uh, at Harvard under Fred Terman, um, who ended up a Stanford professor, ended up creating the innovation ecosystem at Stanford post-war. You know, the, the a physics problem started at Berkeley, was spun out of OSR&D. It was called the Manhattan Project, and its outcome, you know, had some interesting consequences for the next uh, 50 years. Um, and, and so there was a, a model that said we did, did that. Um, we kind of ended that with World War II and then went on to a, a contractor model. But the, but the DOD was capable of picking winners and losers. And that kind of is what stopped in the 70s. Uh, there's a bunch of us in the startup world who think that one of the big problems with these incubators and accelerators is giving out, you know, million dollar um, grants is actually detrimental um, to getting effective weapon systems. Is that no, you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So now every, everybody gets a prize for participation rather than <laughs> the goal isn't that you showed up on the soccer field. The goal is to win the effing game we're kind of forgetting that that's also the goal of these incubators and accelerators. And, um, and if we're not prepared to pick winners and losers, then we're not prepared to actually, you know, move what we need to move forward. That's the other problem with what we're doing. So to answer your question, I think we could come back to a way where civilian uh, and commercial world not only could help the DOD, but I think the DOD in the last uh, 30 or so years has been so blinded by their primes that they've just forgotten to look outside the building and seen what's going on in the commercial world. I think with the Jake, we now understand the power of AI, I think, uh, and machine learning and vision techniques. I think we're still confusing shiny object technology with weapon systems and operational concepts, but okay, at least we're starting to look outside the building. Again, my favorite horse to beat is, you know, I, I think the 10-year struggle to get SpaceX recognized as a resource for the country and, and the DOD um, is just illustrative of the problem the rest of the DOD has in building a new alliance between the military and civilian world that just doesn't exist today. And I know this because I and uh, 
Jill Felter and Pete Newell built a program called Hacking for Defense, which we now, uh, uh, through uh, uh, Defense uh, Innovation Unit, run in 30 to 40 universities where uh, students and research universities work on DOD problems. These are students that the DOD would never have seen. I mean, they they would go to Facebook or Google or whatever, but the post-class connect rate is over 40%. You know, it's a small token of what the DOD ought to be doing in funding startups, picking winners, you know, engaging with the venture capital world. There's an underground uh, venture capital group in Silicon Valley now started by us, not the DOD, called the Defense Investors Network. There's about 75 venture capitalists who invest in dual-use technologies, and the DOD is still trying to figure out what the heck it is. Um, So we decided to kind of do it. So there's a series of things that could be done if um, the DOD appreciated the commercial world a bit more to build a acquisition system that embraced them rather than stood them off at arm's length and incented the current primes to figure out where the future is. All those companies that you brought up earlier, the Palantirs, the SpaceXs, the Endurals, and then what you're talking about with the the Defense Innovation Network, it seems like all of those kind of came in for almost ideological reasons on their own, not because it seemed like a good business opportunity. They knew it was going to take many years and potentially a failure, and it's going to be a really hard hack to get in there, but they stuck with it anyway. idea for your listeners and required a billionaire. With idealism, right? <laughs> exactly. because no startup could afford to deal with the, the Department of Defense. This is a big idea for your listeners in the DOD. No startup in Silicon Valley can spend, you know, like the first pile of paper, they run the other way. You know, oh, OTAs are better. you got to be kidding. You know, where a startup could raise $25 million in an afternoon. The DOD just has no conception about the speed that the commercial world operates on now. And again, that's a real failing for the country because our adversaries have figured that out. You know, if you want the most visible look, just look at the number of generations of of ships China has turned out while we're still arguing about, you know, arresting gear on the the Ford class carrier. And and again, it's not a technology problem. It's a people and process problem. And it's people recognizing that there's a major impetus mismatch between what the commercial world has and how they operate and how the DOD needs to partner with them. Uh, Speed, urgency, funding, uh, I mentioned earlier, security issues, et cetera. And the only people who, now back to your point, who could overcome them were billionaires with time, patience, and a fanatical interest in helping their country in spite of itself. I want to say this again, in spite of itself. Um, And that's just, uh, you know, it's just hard to wrap your head again around that. I completely agree with the the emphasis on the people and the organizations. And it seems like everything that we do is focused on the program. What's the program life cycle? How are we going to like predict that and and manage that rather than how do we manage these organizations? And, you know, you you brought this up a little bit ago with uh, after World War Two, you know, we, we basically uh, neutered the the bureau and arsenal systems, which had all these great in-house technical abilities that allowed the people in government to pick winners and losers, rather than you have a kind of business person or someone that's not really proficient in that area coming in and having to rely on these processes. And now other transactions, which are supposed to be commercial-like and quick, actually involve a great deal of paperwork and, and, and an avalanche of other types of processes. And to be fair, a good chunk of this is the fault of Congress, is that 
For every corner case of a scandal, instead of saying this is a corner case, we just layered on another set of rules that actually blanketed everybody rather than just saying, hey, you know what? Like in every hundred you know, acquisitions, there's going to be one criminal activity. Um, <laughs> yeah. So instead of shutting down the other 99, why don't, why don't we just focus on how to, how to weed out the one? What people don't understand, particularly in Congress and also the DOD, is when you do innovation, most of them fail. This is a culture problem, right? Um, if you don't embrace failure and risk, in the more innovative the ideas and more disruptive, this is a funnel, not a pipeline. When you're acquiring a, a new gun, gee, we kind of know how to build guns, and therefore we should not accept failure in those types of acquisitions. But we're, when we're trying new concepts and new ideas, if we confuse that with execution rather than innovation, this goes back to ambidexterity. We also need different processes and risk tolerances for those types of activities. And given that our current culture plays a gotcha game rather than what startups do is we, you know, we have a special word for a failed entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. You know what it is? Experienced. Try that in Congress. Let's go, oh, there's an investigation of why did this fail? How come you didn't predict? Whatever. If we don't educate people that says, look, the innovation pipeline has different risk profiles than the execution pipeline. Those things that require imagination and vision, most of them are actually hallucinations, but we'll spend money on them. But the ones or twos that exist, those will be game changers. Um, and we ought to have the, the stomach and the insight and the vision and the passion to be able to do both, to be able to acquire things that, that we need to sustain our, our current capabilities but also have the vision to, to kind of see the future and take the risks to acquire things that, that will get us ahead, but a good number of them might not work. That's a great place to end. Steve Blank, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. This was great. Thank you so much for your time. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.